We're continuing this morning with Jesus' prayer in John 17 from the Gospel lesson. It is, as I mentioned last week, it's the longest and it is the most intimate glimpse of Jesus' interior life in all of Scripture. So we're taking it in small chunks. Going slow is necessary when you are crossing this territory. It recently came to my attention that some 15 or so years ago, in an evening service here, that I preached on John 17, the whole chapter, in one sermon. I feel like I owe everyone who attended that like a retroactive apology. (laughs) You look back on the things you did, and I can't claim that I was super young, but I was younger than I am now. Anyway, attempting that is, to put it delicately, overly ambitious. It's also disrespectful, I think, to the density, like the depth of the terrain, the text. I mentioned last week that Thomas Manton, Cromwell's chaplain, preached 45 sermons on John 17. I don't think we have to go that slow, but we're going to take the next small chunk, Lord willing, today here in verses 6 through 12. And so what happens here, Jesus prayed for himself, for his own coming glory, that he might glorify the Father in the first part of the prayer. And now we move into the heart of his concern for the church. So if we step back and we ask ourselves, where are we? We have Jesus. He's an itinerant rabbi. He has no credentials. He's been a church planter for three years. And he's got 11 scared Galilean peasants. Most of whom are still, even at this late hour, Quite confused. Try getting some funding from the churches with that track record in the field. And yet, it is a part, a a central part, I think, of the mystery and the glory of the church that lies right here in its very weakness, in its human improbability. And I want to look at the glory of the church under three headings today. They're there on the back inside page of the bulletin. Origin, Constitution, and Future. So first, origin. Now by origin I mean this. The church is the chosen community. The, The source, the root... The origin of the church is not that she's a voluntary social organization. It doesn't lie in history at all. It resides in the mystery of the eternal God's sovereign election. You can see this right here in verse 6. Jesus has revealed the Father, notice, to those whom you gave me out of the world. In the opening part of the prayer, which we looked at last week, Jesus says that the Son 
has been given, this word given or gift occurs 17 times in the prayer, the Son has been given authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given him. It couldn't be clearer than that. And here again in verse 6, he reveals the Father to those given him by the Father. Notice he says this, they were yours. It's amazing. They were yours. But verse 9 tells us that the Father and the Son, they share all things. And thus the sheep that belong to the Father are destined to become the Son's sheep as well. How far back, we might ask, does this go? I mean, when did the sheep start belonging to the Father? Well, the rest of the New Testament tells us. We heard it in the call to worship today. The Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. The sheep were already the Father's. They were yours. You gave them to me, Jesus continues. This forces one to look at the church differently. The church is a gift, an eternally planned gift from the Father to the Son. The, The great 18th century American philosopher, theologian Jonathan Edwards said that the Father created the world. Father created the world so that the Spirit might prepare a bride for the Son. And so the church's security then is never in doubt. Outwardly, to be sure, she's subject to all these historical forces. But even here, on this night, her very humble and very fragile beginnings are rooted and grounded in the being, the inscrutable being of the electing God. I think this is very important. It means that You know, often people step back and look at things. I have stacks of books that do this. There's sociological studies. You know, you look at the church. It's a sociological phenomenon. There's demographic studies. There's organizational analysis of the church. And as helpful as some of these things are, they never penetrate to the mystery of the church's life. The church is God's project, and it's his property. And part of its glory lies precisely in the fact that it is not built upon strong men. But it's built upon what Paul calls, and this is what he calls us, get this, the things that are not. The the nullities. God, Paul says, chose, there it is again, right? God chose the things that are weak. And he chose the things that are foolish. And he chose the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no one should boast in the presence of God. Think of it this way. Because you and I, because We, the congregation of Christ, the church of Christ, because we live and move in the electing God, the inscrutable God who can't be tamed or managed, 
or corralled who chooses, we have great consolation and boasting is excluded. It's a thing of great gladness, but also of great gravity. We heard in the New Testament lesson this morning from Ephesians, and in that chapter, Paul is blessing God. The chapter's a doxology. He's praising God. Blessed be the God and Father. And he sets forth this sovereign, eternal, predestinating God, and it is all worship. It is all exaltation. There's not a whiff from Paul that somehow because God chooses, there's a conundrum or a difficulty or there's some angst or there's some anxiety or there's some difficult philosophical problem to be solved. Election produces joy. And the fact that it doesn't do so for us means we're just not working with the deep logic of Holy Scripture. It produces, or it should produce, what it produces for Paul. Joy and the deepest humility. Nobody is here because we are special, or particularly wise, or particularly good, or particularly smart. Right, this is a doctrine which our confession, the Westminster Confession, which you can find in the back of the Red Hymnal, if you ever want to take a look at it. It calls this the high mystery of predestination. And that confession goes on and says it's designed to produce, quote, humility and abundant consolation to all who obey the gospel. Right? That is the origin of the church's existence, and it's the origin or the root of your existence as a Christian. The second thing here is the Constitution, and by this I mean the charter of the church, that by which the church is, on which the church is founded, maybe that which establishes the church. So election roots the church in eternity, but revelation establishes the church. Revelation is the church's constitution. Right? The church isn't free to do what she wants to do. It's, it's the revelation of God. Things which are disclosed to us, things which are handed to us, given to us, these things are our constitution, which is why the church cannot change its mind about things when the culture does. We don't have that liberty. We're bound by revelation. In fact, it's dangerous for the church to constantly be panting after its own relevance. Fulton Sheath famously said, If the church marries the spirit of this age, she will find herself a widow in the next age. So, this revelation entails, above everything else, the name of God. Look at verse 6. I have revealed to you, I have revealed you, or I have revealed your name, is what the text actually says there. I have revealed your name to those you gave me. That's what's been unveiled to you. The name of God, which is his very character, the very godness of God, his inner identity. That's been unveiled to the church, and that is our constitution. Now, of course, you know this, but when humans assign names to their children, they're sort of like preferred designations. 
Right? I want to call this child X. Or maybe you just like the sound of the name. Or the meaning of the name. Maybe you like the fact that a person bore the name. And you like that person. Maybe even the name represents for you your aspirations for the child. Right? Daniel means God is judged, so you hope your child grows up to fear God like Daniel. Hopefully all the children here understand why their parents named them what they did. And if not, you should ask your parents. But human names are not by necessity tied to the child's nature. Right? They can be changed. Right? They could be different. You can go down to the courthouse when you get older, change the name without changing the essence of who you are. But it's not so with the names of God. God's names reveal his essence. They're not merely what he's called. They are who he is. They are his godness. They are intrinsic. They can't change any more than God could change. You know what the closest human analogy I could think to for this would be? It would be if you had parents who named you this. Rational creature made in the image of God. Here's my daughter, rational creature made in the image of God. Now, if she changes that name, you would say, well, I can't change my name. I would be changing the essence of who I am. Right? You see how ridiculous it is with human names. Human names don't designate the essence of what humans are. And even if someone wanted to be clever and name their child rational creature made in the image of God, they could still change the name and not change the fact that they were a rational creature made in the image of God. So we're dealing with something fundamentally different here when we talk about God's name. That's what's been unveiled, Jesus says. I mean, think about this. Jesus is hours away from his execution. And he sums up his whole ministry his whole life, and says, these, these, these peasants right here in front of me, I've revealed your name to them. That's what I've been doing. And the prophets say that when the Messiah comes in the Messianic age, my people shall know my name. Really, in one sense, John has been about this from the beginning of the gospel. If you go all the way back to the opening of John's gospel, in chapter 1, he says Jesus is the one who exegetes. He interprets. He unpacks or unveils the Father. No one has seen the Father except the only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father. He makes him known. Same language Jesus uses here. I've made you known. Thus, Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, you've seen the name of God. Look at verse 8. He says, I gave them the words you gave me. Jesus is the revelation of the Father's name, and he speaks and he teaches words which sort of unpack that revelation. That's what sermons do. That's what good teaching does. It It's called exposition, and an exposition exposes something to view. And Jesus exposes to view who the Father is. Who God is, what God speaks, as revealed in Christ, that is the face or the name of God. And that is what the church is bound to. It's why the church is obsessive 
about reading scripture as well. That's why we have three scripture readings. Because in scripture, that's the place. It's a location. And it's a permanent public place where you can encounter the name of God. So if you're sitting there thinking, this is all well, but I want to touch this name and taste this name and encounter this name and see this name, well, that, the answer to that, of course, is the text of Holy Scripture. That's where you can run your fingers across the face of God. And so the church originates in the election of God. Her constitution, her charter is the revelation of God's name. And that brings me to her future. The third thing here, look at verse 11. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. This is why the future of the church needs to be addressed. Jesus is leaving the world, but his disciples remain. And the world is hostile. It hated the master, he says, it will hate the servants. The evil one remains an active threat. He's already judged, but he's still a threat. And so this very fragile band of disciples has what looks like, to all human eyes, a very, you know, precarious, dangerous future. They certainly are going to have a future of warfare and temptation and resistance from powers. It's a future they can be in no way presumptuous about. So Jesus prays for them and he says this, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name. The same name which establishes the church, right, which is our charter, is the name which protects and preserves the church. So that when God reveals his name, it's not just information, it's power. Right? This name is lightning. It's alive. It's divine energy going forth. Protect them, Holy Father, by the power of the name, the name you gave me. The name which Jesus shares, the name which Jesus is. Right? This name is the glory of God, which comes to us in the power of the Spirit. Later in this prayer, not today, but later in this prayer, same chapter, Jesus will pray that the Father protect them from the evil one. And so the the malice of the world, the deceit of Satan, against these, Jesus pits the power of the name of God. He sees that the disciples, that you, that the church are placed in a dramatic theater. A theater where a cosmic drama is being played out. And there's real consequences, real warfare, and a real battle. And he prays for this name, which has been unveiled, to be a name which defends and protects you. The Lord saves us, we heard this in the Old Testament lesson today from Psalm 54, by the power of his name, by his godness, by his self-revelation going forth. Right? Proverbs 18, the name of the Lord is a high tower. The righteous run into it, run into the name of the Lord today. And they are safe. You want to be safe? You have to run into the name. And notice verse 11. The end of verse 11. Jesus prays for the protection in this name so that we might be one as the Father and the Son are one. I'm going to leave this aside for now because Jesus brings it up later in the prayer. And I hope to address it in a a future week. So, 
Jesus was with them, he says. While I was with them, I protected them. I was the name incarnate. I kept them safe by the name you gave me. So over and over and over in the text, the name appears. Jesus is the name of God in human flesh. He kept them safe. Now that he's leaving, he prays for the Father to keep you in the power of the name. Even the defection of Judas, even in that, God remains unthwartable. The electing God whose revelation is fulfilled. So I want to conclude with two applications here. We'll call them prayer and progress. Prayer and progress. First prayer. So if we step back a little, I want to look at the forest and maybe not so much the trees. Let us not forget, Jesus is praying here. He's praying for the disciples and by implication praying for you. He will pray explicitly for you very shortly in this prayer. But he's praying for the chosen community. He's praying for the people given to him by the Father. Or if you will, he's praying for the elect. And again, notice, for him, election does not need to lead to inaction. It leads to prayer. Isn't this an odd mystery? After affirming that they are chosen, Jesus says this, I pray for them. There's something of the deep logic of the gospel here. The deep logic of grace and of the scriptures. The New Testament lesson from Ephesians 1 Verse 15, right after Paul goes through verses 3 through 14, where he expounds this predestining, electing God, in verse 15, he turns and says, now I pray for them. I just explained that they were chosen from the foundation of the world, and the first thing I do is I pray. Jesus does not think election means prayer is unimportant or redundant. He doesn't think it leads to resignation or despair. He prays, and we should follow his example. We should follow his example. Notice what he prays for, though. He prays for the church to be protected from the hatred of the world and from the evil one. He has a deep sense of what these, this band of disciples, what we are up against. They're still in the world, Father. Protect them. Keep them safe. Lead them not into temptation. Deliver them from evil. I want to exhort you, please pray for the deep spiritual realities with which the church is engaged. Pray especially for the church's protection from evil. The uh, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, he makes a pointed observation on this text. He says this. He says, the spiritual dimensions of this prayer of Jesus are overwhelming and consistent He continues, by contrast, we spend much more time praying about our health, our projects, our decisions, our finances, our family, and even our games than we do praying about the dangers of the evil one. The church is established and she survives by the power of God's name, and we are not to presume We are not to presume, but we are to passionately pray for that name to be hallowed, that we might be safe. 
Second application is progress. Progress. I'll ask you a question. I know the answer. Have you ever received a gift that kind of disappointed you? Children? You ever receive a gift that kind of really didn't want? A little less than you want. Maybe you wanted a bicycle or a baseball glove. You wanted some music and your parents bought you something else. You know, maybe they bought you a book. (laughs) It's disappointing. Adults have the same experience. Let's say, hypothetically, you really liked books. And all you want is a gift certificate from Amazon.com. But your kids keep buying you clothes and ties. Hypothetical. This is hypothetical. You keep getting clothes, right? That's exasperating. I'm making this really easy for you. So, you know, these gifts, they can look unappealing at first, right? But think of this. This band of ignorant, unlettered Galilean peasants are the Father's gift to Jesus. I mean, what kind of father gives you this band of people to start your movement with? I mean, they're not very promising, right? And let me remind you. Jesus does not say, oh, this is a spectacular gift. I can work with this. Jesus has been exasperated with the gift. Even as late as this night. Right? He says to Philip, this is in the same night. Like, so this is an hour earlier than our text. Jesus says to Philip, how can you keep asking me this? Have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still don't understand? This is the Father's gift to Jesus. But notice what Jesus says here. Notice this. Verse, the end of verse 6. They have obeyed your word. Verse 7, they've come to know that everything you have given me comes from you. Verse 8, they've accepted your words. He goes on to say, I've received glory from them. It's quite a remarkable progress report that Jesus gives on these disciples. One is tempted to ask, and commentators have asked this in the history of the church here, are these the same guys we've been reading about through the whole gospel? I mean, there's, there's, there's a great deal of confusion and ignorance in these men, even at this late hour. But notice this. This is the point I want to make. They have made progress. And they've made progress on the main thing. Who Jesus is, that he's from the Father. This was not easy for them to get. But they appear to have that now. Are you making progress on the main things? Look, we're all shrouded in ignorance and confusion. We all have our own corruptions. But these men, Jesus says, they don't often understand me, but they've accepted my words and they seek to obey them, right? Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. There's real signs of spiritual movement in them. Who Jesus is. What Jesus says, that's the center of things. Right? That's the name that's been revealed. And Jesus says they've, made, they've moved on this. They've got something of a grasp of it. 
See, the father knew what he was doing in the giving of this gift. Even though the gift's magnificence, the gift's usefulness was largely future, right? Just like your parents, children, right? They know what they're doing. Your children may not know what they're doing if they give you a gift, but your parents, they know what they're doing if they give you a gift. And it might not appear at first to be a gift you need, but you also have had this experience, right? You've grown to love the gift, right? Eventually, you've grown to love a gift that your parents gave you that you didn't like at first, right? I've even got ties I like. So, Jesus' point is relevant to us because we all start like these men. Like we all start in an unpromising and confused state. And we continue in that state for decades. Until we die, actually. But Jesus is patient. He's working with you because you're the gift given to him by the Father. There's a kind of divine teaching method here. He keeps revealing more and more the name. He keeps speaking through the Spirit. He keeps praying for the church. Jesus is praying for you even now at the right hand of the Father. He started praying for you in his earthly life, and he's never stopped praying for you. And thus we're confident we strive to make progress. You know, one of my favorite things, among many favorite things in the Apostle Paul, is in Philippians where he says, I would rather depart and be with Christ. Now remember, he's in a Roman jail. Depart and be with Christ here does not mean die peacefully in your sleep. It means suffer martyrdom. I would rather suffer martyrdom and be with Christ, he says. But if you're going to force me to continue living on the earth, he says, then I will stay Now get this, for your progress, for your progress and for your joy in the faith. I mean, who who talks like this? But you have breath so that you can make progress spiritually. That's why God has not taken you out of the world yet. And so that you can live for the progress of your brothers and sisters in the community. Right? We live for this progress. Sure, it's not straight and it's not easy and it's one step up and two steps back, but we have to fight for real progress. Right? We'll fight for all sorts of stuff. It's amazing the things people will fight for. You're going to have to fight for this progress, which means giving yourself to the name of God, the Godness of God revealed in Jesus, placed into your hands in Holy Scripture. We should give ourselves to that because that God in his eternal election is the church's and your origin. And in the revelation of his name, that God is the church's and your charter. And that God in that name is the church's and your future for he protects and defends you. I will summarize the sermon in one sentence. Your past Your present and your future are enfolded in the name of God. That's good news. From him and through him and unto him are all things. To him be the glory in Christ Jesus and in the church now and forever. Amen.